A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Unscrewed, the show that knows that real liberation includes sexual liberation. I am your host, Jacqueline Friedman, and I thought I would wrap up this season of Unscrewed by talking about one of the big questions. We are going to talk about women's right to pleasure. We're going to get, I guess, sort of down to the root of every conversation we have here at Unscrewed, and we're going to do it thanks to the brilliant new book by Jill Filipovic, writer and fellow feminist shitster and friend of mine. Jill, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. You have written a book about why centering female pleasure could transform our entire culture, and I love you for that. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So it was a sort of challenging book to write, I think in part because I was kind of, I don't know, looking ahead and guessing what all of the blowback was going to be. Like Mm. even the suggestion that women do have a right to prioritize their own pleasure and happiness is so controversial. And I knew it would seem both kind of controversial and flippant. And that to me, I think speaks to just how important this topic is and kind of how impoverished the current conversation around it is. Yes. And I'm dying to get into all of that with you. But as you know, (laughs) first we have to do the lightning round. So are you ready? I'm ready. All right. What has been making you the happiest this week? Coming back home after a trip. Oh, nice. You've been on book tour, right? Yeah, I've been on book tour in the U.S. And then I was just on a really actually amazing weekend in Vienna to see an avant-garde feminist art exhibit and uh, to attend the Life Ball, which is a big HIV AIDS fundraiser. And it was great. But now I'm back home in my house in Nairobi. We just moved into a house and I have a garden and I'm growing herbs and I feel like a little homesteader and it's making me really happy. Oh, nice. Someday I will get there. We have a guest room with your name on it. Uh, What is the best sex advice you ever received? I would say that sex is weird for everyone. Yes, (laughs) it is weird for everyone. (laughs) I think we spend you know, so much time like comparing our sex lives, like what we see on TV or the kind of sex we assume our friends are having. And I remember, you know, at one point, a woman who was a bit older than me was like, it's just weird. And it never really stops being weird. And like, sometimes it's good weird. Um, But it's always like, it is just a weird thing. Um, And it's never going to be like, airbrushed and filtered and embrace that. And you'll have better sex. And I think that that was that was pretty good advice. That is a fantastic advice. Yes, I love that. What sexuality-related news has been making you the maddest or saddest lately? I would say one story that I've actually been reporting on quite a bit is the uh, Trump reinstating the global gag rule, which is a U.S. policy that basically cuts off under the Trump rule any foreign aid funding to any organization that so much as mentions abortion as an option for women. And this only applies to organizations abroad because it would violate the First Amendment if we tried to implement it here in the U.S. So instead, we can just do it to everyone else. Exactly. So I've been reporting on this in Ghana and in Niger, 
and in Kenya and in Ethiopia, and I've talked to a lot of different women and healthcare providers and youth rights advocates, you know, sexuality advocates. And, you know, what I, I just keep hearing from them, how overwhelmingly devastating this is, not just for women's health, but also for like the basic right of people to have sex for pleasure or to even talk to a doctor about their healthcare needs or to talk to, you know, a midwife or an outreach person. I mean, it's a terrible policy. And, you know, I think it got some play when it first came out. But now that it's actually being implemented, I think we're starting to see kind of bit by bit the impact of it. And it is it is depressing and not good. Where should we be looking for reporting on that? Because I feel like so much is getting lost in the sauce with, you know, like the 10 alarm dumpster fire that is the Trump administration. (laughs) I know. Yes. I mean, unfortunately, because it's not super like newsy, there isn't I haven't read anything in the past couple weeks on it. I did a big piece for Foreign Policy magazine on it. There were a couple pieces in the Times that were quite good. But I would say kind of following some of the advocacy organizations. So PSI is a really good one. Marie Stopes is another very good one. Planned Parenthood International is a great one. I'm, I'm sure there's like a whole long list of others that I'm now failing to mention. All right. We'll we'll drop some links in the show notes at JacquelineFreeman.com slash unscrewed for people who want to follow the story because I do feel like it's not getting I hate that sort of like while you're distracted over here the real story is over here like it's all real story right but but it's right it's an important story that's not getting talked about enough you know there's a real human cost to this administration and I think a lot of that is getting lost in the kind of obsession with congressional testimony yeah all right. Um, what is the, <laughs> I don't know what else to say about that. You're right. What's the biggest sex myth that you once believed but don't anymore? Well, that virginity was real and that it was a good thing to preserve your virginity until marriage. I love your little purity ring story, although I, I did know it, but I just, <laughs> we're going to definitely talk about your purity ring story. Teaser. Okay. Uh, last question is, who's one of the bravest people that you are watching do work to unscrew the sexual culture? I am a huge fan of Sophia Wallace. Yes. Um, she, have you had her on? I haven't had her on. I should have her on. You should have her on. She's so rad. So she's a feminist artist. She's been sort of based in New York and in Berlin and sort of all over the place. I think she's back in New York now. But she does this amazing project called Clitoracy, where she does art installations, um, some of them in galleries, some of them like public art and graffiti, some of them through jewelry and T-shirts and like articles of clothing you can wear that all aims to improve literacy around female sexuality. She did a huge piece for the Huffington Post about kind of the history of female sexuality and the clitoris. And she's just, she's brilliant and awesome. Um, And I think she's kind of doing the Lord's work. Amen. Yes. You survived the lightning round quite admirably, I might add. Thanks. So I have like so much to talk to you about, about this book that all of my thoughts are jamming together in like a little thought traffic jam. And I kind of want to start in a really personal place. I'm having this weird moment in my life right now where I realize that I've just developed this super dysfunctional relationship to pleasure just from becoming a workaholic over the last 10 years um (laughs) just to sort of shorthand it I guess I'm at this place now where I've actually gotten a slowed down schedule for the summer and I thought oh it'll be light and fun and I realize that like I barely know what 
is pleasurable to me. And even when I do know, it feels like I should, like, I just have this messed up relationship to pleasure. And, you know, you're not my therapist, right? Like, but, (laughs) but I also wonder how much of a challenge that is to your, well, your agenda. I'm just going to say it, your feminist agenda. Um, (laughs) Because when I heard about the premise of your book, even though I'm literally a pleasure activist, right? Like when I started reading it, part of me was like, wow, Jill, maybe you're going too far here. And then I was like, what are you doing, Jacqueline? And it's it's my own shit. But I but I feel like if, if I have that, right, given what I do and what I think about all day, like I wonder like how hard it is to think about making this turn to a culture that centers pleasure at all, let alone women's pleasure. I think especially... The book was very focused on American culture, A, because it's the culture that I grew up in and, and know best, and B, because I think our culture does have a hostility to pleasure that is fairly unique. I think that we have this sort of sense that if something feels too good, it is hedonistic and therefore indulgent and lazy and less valuable than this kind of like Protestant work ethic thing. And I think there's been this kind of interesting divide through American history, right, where like men were supposed to find purpose in their work ethic outside of the home, whereas women were supposed to find purpose working in the home. But nobody was really supposed to be like lolling around. You know, and as somebody who finds a lot of purpose in my work, I think that there is something really important about kind of breaking down that gender distinction and kind of allowing women that space also to find not necessarily, I don't think it has to be like you love your job every minute of every day, but finding that like having economic independence like feels good. That to me is I think a very important feminist project. But I think what we really can't lose in that is that we are all whole human beings, right? And our work is part of our lives. For me, it's a very large part of my life, which is something I'm happy about. That that can't, none of us can kind of do one thing. None of us want that. That isn't like a component part to a happy life. What is a happy life is a life with kind of many different component pieces that bring us joy in different ways. And in the book, when I was talking about happiness, I really wanted to make it focused on politics and policy. And so I talk about things that I think to Americans sound a bit frivolous, like vacation days. And, you know, making enough money, not just to be able to kind of keep your head above water, but to be able to do things that feel enjoyable, whether that's, you know, buying yourself a bottle of wine or going on vacation or taking your kid to the movies, you know, or whatever it is. These things that we think of, I think, largely as kind of indulgence or kind of only on offer for people that have the privilege to afford them, to me, are the very things that we should, frankly, be building policy around. Because, like, the, what the fuck else are we doing here, right? If, if it's not to lead, like, good and happy lives. And why would we not want our institutions to help cater to that? Ooh, yeah. I mean, I agree. I, I think the question I'm asking is, how hard do you think it's going to be to get the American people to agree with you? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Really, really hard. <laughs> But I think one thing that we could do a bit better, and this was one of the things I'm hoping for from the book, was for you know feminists to really put forward this kind of unabashed and unapologetic pleasure and happiness-centric view of what we're aiming for. I think sometimes we forget how quickly things change. I think especially those of us who are kind of in the slog of it every day, it can feel like we have this idea of what a good world can look like. Like, why are we not getting there faster? 
And I think it's easy to forget that, you know, when my mom was my age, she was, you know, was sent to, well, when she was younger than me, when she was in high school, was sent to secretarial school, which she hated and dropped out from. (laughs) And, you know, she assumed that she would, like, get married and probably be a stay-at-home mom and, you know, knew women who had never worked outside the home. That was very much kind of, she was very working class, so it wasn't the norm in her neighborhood, but it certainly was the norm among other households that she observed. You know, and for me, even among the women that now, you know, I'm 33, have had kids and have decided to stay home full time, all of us have worked at some point in our lives. All of us grew up assuming we would have jobs. All of us, like, have been and know how to be financially independent. So, I mean, that's an enormous change just in the course of one generation. So, I mean, I would love it if I think the feminist movement would really be, I think, like I said, really unapologetic about saying, look, you know, here's the kind of world that we want. Here's the kind of world that we have and that conservatives are pushing for. Here's our alternative vision. And here's how we get there. And yes, like this maybe sounds a little bit frivolous or challenging to you, but why? And then I think some of these issues, frankly, you can sort of reframe them in terms that I don't imagine they will appeal to like every social conservative out there. But, you know, if you are a person, for example, who really cares about making marriages stronger, you can't do that if you have a married couple who are splitting shifts, like taking care of the kids and working and never see each other and have no sick days and no vacation days. That is a recipe for economic and relational instability and divorce. If you are a person who cares about that, who wants to see the divorce rate go down and the marriage rate go up, which I personally, that's not necessarily one of my goals, but, um, (laughs) but that's like a fine goal for, you know, more sort of conservative social policy. Great. So let's do what works. And we know what works is giving people economic stability, giving them time to spend not only quality time with each other, but intimate time. And this is the thing that like weirdly pro-marriage conservatives never want to talk about is that like married people typically, not all of them, but many of them do want to have sex with each other. Yes. (laughs) Um, But need to have the time need to have the kind of like lack of stress that enables intimacy and need to have the health. I mean, you know, I think another topic that we don't talk about a whole lot is the fact that ill health can really negatively impact our sex lives, which then really negatively impacts marriages, which then drives down both overall happiness and marital quality. So anyway, if you're a person who's more to the right, you know, I do think there are arguments for these things that make a lot of sense. Although I think really the the right-wing people think about it in the having the horse cart reversed like they think promoting and insisting on hetero marriage will make people happier and not that happy people will make better marriages right like they think about marriage as the cure to the problem of poverty to the problem of what they see as moral decay you know like they don't I actually wish I thought more of them actually were concerned with (laughs) happy marriages yeah, and I don't think that they are. I guess <laughs> at, least not like, at least not the ones that are kind of leading the charge. But I do think there are people who are not the ones opining on these issues in public, but for whom, you know, the sort of argument that a lower divorce rate is a good thing probably resonates. Yeah. I do think you can reach, I hope you can reach some of those people by saying, okay, well, look, let's look at how we actually do this. It's not just like get married, bam, poof, like you're happy you know, it's how do we help create not only marriages, but, you know, all kinds of relationships that are sustainable, that don't lead to the kind of disruption that negatively impacts people's lives, our children's lives, our financial lives. 
that to me is an argument that should kind of appeal across the board. I think you're right that it probably won't, but in a more <laughs> sane world, it would. I never fail to bring the cynicism. But um, <laughs> so how did you come to start the project in the first place? Something I've been developing for a long time. You know, I've been writing about women and feminism and reproductive rights and sexual violence and all this stuff for, you know, a, a solid decade now, maybe more than that. I don't really want to count. Um, and so I'm kind of assessing the universe of things that I've been covering over and over again, I was trying to sort of pull out what are the kind of themes and through lines here. And it really did seem like one of the themes was this hostility to to female pleasure or to women feeling good about their lives. And this kind of weaponizing of politics and sex and policy and in our institutions to kind of constrain women and to either keep them from kind of actively pursuing pleasure and happiness or to punish them if they're seen as like stepping outside of those bounds. So, I mean, I think certainly like sexual violence is a really good example of this. And it's an example, and actually I quote you in the book in this section um, in one of the last chapters where I talk about the kind of narratives around sexual assault and especially around kind of sexual assault on like college campuses or among young women you know, so, so much of the advice on it is don't drink, don't go to frat parties, mm -hmm. don't, you know, don't go, don't like do these things mm -hmm. <clears throat> that frankly are very normal parts of being a young adult and that frankly are fun. And people do them because they are fun and people have, you know, use mind altering substances for all of human history because it is fun. Because it's fucking fun. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. People have also like engaged in various levels of intimate contact because that is fun. It feels really good. Right, it feels good. Like this is just, this is very normal human stuff. But the advice for young women is you can have some fun, but not too much. And where that line tips into too much is kind of seems to be ever shifting. And then if something does happen to you, if you are sexually assaulted, the narrative then I think quickly shifts over into either this was just, you know, bad sex or like, normal human interactions gone wrong as if like being sexually assaulted is somehow a part of the normal human sexual trajectory i mean it's way too normal but it that doesn't well, right, make it yeah, inevitable but like, yeah <laughs> exactly you know or it's like this is the punishment right what did you think was going to happen you sort of put your own pleasure ahead of your own safety as if those two things are somehow intention with each other it makes me think about did you read um, i just talked about this on last week's episode amanda marcotte wrote recently about the remarketing of abstinence only education as sexual risk avoidance education oh my god no i didn't read that it's very fucking clever a but also that framework i've been railing against this idea of like sexual risk avoidance as like the goal when it comes to sex and especially women in sex right that that idea is that we want to have the most risk-free sex lives possible, which doesn't factor in pleasure, right? Like, we sort of, it's like, well, maybe we want to take some risks. Like, we take risks in all of the rest of the arenas of our lives, and people, you know, say nothing ventured, nothing gained, right? But when it's about sexual pleasure, the idea that we might allow any risk in order to pursue pleasure as women, yeah, absolutely makes us blameworthy and, and basically gives carte blanche for people to do whatever the fuck they want to us somehow right and it's i mean it's very odd because obviously like romantic risk-taking is quite glorified right yes <laughs> yes oh you just met him six weeks ago and you're getting married that's so romantic yeah i mean it's <laughs> i'm in a relationship that was born out of like great romantic risk 
you know, we dated for like two or three months before we moved to Kenya together. You moved to Kenya. <laughs> I know. It's very romantic. It's And it's super romantic and it's awesome and I'm really glad I did it. And frankly, if it had gone sideways, I would have moved back and it would have been a lesson learned and I think a risk still worth taking. But this idea that like in romance, risk is okay, but in sex, it's not, as if those two things don't have like some degree of overlap. Yeah, but the whole conversation about sex and risk, the way we talk about sex in this culture is completely devoid of the idea of female sexual pleasure. No, it is. Or the idea that also like sometimes risk can make sex more fun, which I mean, I'm not saying you need to like teach that in a classroom, but that's, <laughs> that's also like the reality of life. People figure that out themselves. You don't have to teach it. Exactly. Yeah. It's the way we like think and talk about sex is frankly so totally bizarre. But it is of a piece. I mean, I think it's exactly of a piece with, you know, the vacation days conversation and the conversation about labor and leisure time and about how marriages are structured and all the other chapters in your book, right? About food, which is also a physical pleasure, right? It's all the same thing. I mean, what do you think happens on vacation? People have sex with each other. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. 
Totally. So in my utopia, it's the other way around. Okay, great. <laughs> Excellent. Sign me up. Yeah, but, but you know, but there's this sense that if like I now I used to work in an office in, you know, a big corporate law firm. And there was definitely this sense that like if one of the male lawyers was like, I need to leave early today because like my kid has a piano recital. Everyone was like, oh, dad of the year. But if a female attorney did it, that was like an indication that she just wasn't dedicated. She's not serious about her career. She wasn't serious about her job. And it wasn't, no, nobody ever said anything very like specifically about it, but it was sort of this general sense. And I even frankly noticed myself having that, those same set of assumptions and kind of had to check myself on it. But you know, like you said earlier, this stuff is, it's really deep. So yeah, I mean, you know, in, in my utopia, well, A, we would all have like good parental leave, men would take it as much as women, and men would frankly be equal partners in the home as much as women would. And then I also just think our kind of, we wouldn't have a society built around this kind of nuclear family unit with like one person who works outside the home and one person who works in it. Um, That is still kind of the assumption around which our workplaces, our laws, our institutions are all built. And so I would love to have, you know, not just like a reframing of the workplace, but also kind of a reframing of what families can look like and how policies can actually reflect the kind of changing landscape of the American family. But I would love to see, for example, a tax policy that reflects the fact that people living in like shared family homes are saving a lot of resources. So, you know, if you have three families sharing one home and two bathrooms and one kitchen, that's going to be a, by definition, just like a pretty green household. To me, that family and that living arrangement deserves a tax break for that, right? I think, you know, when you're talking about single parent headed families, we do have child tax credits, but they basically feed back into almost every family kind of the same way. So I would love to see sort of more generous benefits for families on the lower end of the economic spectrum. I would love to see mandated parental leave, including for single parents who have low wage jobs or who don't work at big companies who are kind of the people that tend to get left out of the current system. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I would uh, frankly love to see a social welfare system that looks at parenthood, especially of young children and infants, as real work <laughs> and doesn't force women, you know, who have six week old babies to, you know, go work a minimum wage job when they have like nobody to watch their kids. And minimum wage should be higher. <laughs> well, right, obviously. Like, yeah. Minimum wage should not be, you know, what I was seven twenty five an hour or whatever it is right now. It's unbelievable. It's totally unbelievable. So, you know, when it comes to even laws around marriage and divorce and the kind of unions that we recognize versus don't recognize and kind of how few categories we have for recognizing sort of chosen family ties, that to me is also something that's quite ripe for for a revamp. You know, being able to give people the ability to, for example, make medical decisions for you without having to marry or domestic partner them. I loved that. I, that was Anne Friedman's suggestion. Yeah, Anne Friedman's idea. And I was like, I have long said, like, that's my ideal of marriage, right? Is that obviously we get single payer health care. So nobody has to marry anybody for health insurance that gets <laughs> decoupled from the package. And that civil marriage becomes just like a package deal of rights that you can afford to whoever the fuck you want your sister if you want to right like that you can designate as Anne says like your person and it doesn't have to be like the you don't have to be in a romantic relationship with them and then if you want to have a church or religious or you know for an intimate long-term partnership like god bless yep and it would be great to be able to do it in a way that didn't require any sort of 
I don't know. I think even making it, separating it from marriage to me would be the kind of ideal. Yeah, maybe that, maybe we stop calling it marriage, but then the government gets out of the marriage business altogether. Right, exactly. And like marriage has a lot of cultural salience, so fine. Like people, you know, still get married if you want. But I love this idea of having, and it's Anne's idea of having this like a national database, right? You literally go to a website, you use your social security number, you log in and you designate like who is like my person, who is my medical proxy. Who do I want, like, my retirement savings accounts or whatever? Exactly, exactly. And that's it. And, like, you hit update, and that's all. I mean, to make it that easy, so it's not even like you've got to have a whole, like, we're going to enter into this relationship, and you're going to be mine, and I'm going to be yours. Like, it can be one directional, you know? I could make my friend Shannon my medical proxy, and she could make her sister hers. I mean, that, to me, is the kind of, it seems like it would be fairly simple and would also just be awesome and I think kind of more reflect the realities of our lives. Yeah, I mean, bureaucratically simple, politically. Politically super complicated. (laughs) Um, But, you know, the reality is, like, how many people do you know who, frankly, who are not married, who would not want their parents making medical decisions for them? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't know, just, like, how hard would it be, right? Do you get, like, your annual message that's like, is this still up to date? I mean, I think there are people, too, who are probably married to folks who they don't want making their medical decisions Mm, for them. mm -hmm. And you could quietly undesignate them yeah i'm like why not yeah anyway there's there's part of the utopia thanks Sandy. oh i want to live in your utopia <laughs> how do we get there i know it's like a big question and it sort of circles back to my frustration and cynicism in the beginning about sort of what a cultural project it is i mean you must have been getting you must be getting backlash over like people calling this project frivolous Yeah, I mean, so I would say I've actually been really thrilled by the sort of very positive response for the most part to this project. Oh, and I don't want to make it sound like that. Like the New York Times review was great. The book is really well reviewed. But like I can only imagine that putting this out into the world that you're hearing from some quarters about what a fantasy land this is. Yes, of course. And that is kind of that is the thing that I'm hearing is that this is a fantasy land that this is basically just like feminists wants big government to step in and like give every woman an IUD and a pony, you know? That sounds good. Which is not totally false, but... I mean, that's a lot. Not everyone wants a pony. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I am hearing that from folks. I'm hearing it more, I think, predictably, obviously, from from the right than from the left. But even, at, you know, at readings, it's been a thing that has come up um, in a lot of conversations, mostly people who haven't yet read the book, but have what I think is a very understandable kind of initial reaction to the premise, which is like, well, wait a minute, like American women are facing so many challenges. We have Donald Trump in office. We're in the middle of such an uphill battle right now. Like there are just so many really pressing, important matters to attend to in so many ways in which American women's lives are really, really hard and really shitty. And like, you're just telling us to be happy. (laughs) And that was certainly a critique that I anticipated in writing the book. And, you know, I think the answer to that is yes. (laughs) We are going to focus on happiness or we should focus on happiness and pleasure, not in this hyper-individualistic, like, have more collections and have a hobby and like get a cat and then you'll be happy kind of way. But I do think if we say that happiness and pleasure are our broad political goals, then so much of the other stuff that feminists have long been fighting for kind of naturally has to follow. It's very hard to be happy if you're not economically stable. It's very hard to be happy 
if you can't chart the course of your life, which for women means obviously access to things like education and also access to things like birth control and abortion. You know, it's very hard, I think, to be to have a happy life if, you know, you are not having sex that feels good or if you have a really fraught, intense relationship with your body or with the food you put in your body. These are not small, frivolous things. And, you know, the kind of point I find myself coming back to again and again is like, if it is not to have lives that feel meaningful and satisfying, then like, what else are we doing? What is everyone's goal, like, in their adult lives being on this planet, if not that? Amen. Amen. Are we just here to, like, churn out productivity for somebody else and die? Right. I mean, what, like, a sad and terrible way of looking at the world. We create our culture. This is not a static thing. We create our laws and our governments and our institutions. Like, we are the people that build it. They were not handed down to us from God. And given that, you know, we can build them better. So for people who want to start somewhere in terms of moving toward that utopia you described and and reframing our politics and our policies to support and enable women's happiness and pleasure, what are some on-ramps? Like, obviously, it's a big cultural lift just to get people thinking a different way. Do you you have any ideas for folks who are listening who are like, yes, and like are standing (laughs) up and clapping right now and like want to do something? Yeah. I mean, I would say that there are kind of like individual level things and, you know, micro level and there's sort of bigger, you know, macro kind of political level actions. You know, I think the first big thing is that especially in this political moment, when it feels like we're really beating back at a lot of encroachments on our rights, to really kind of keep our eye on the big picture and to in all or at least most of our kind of political arguments, to always kind of keep that narrative of here's what we want. Like, here's why we're pushing back against this terrible law restricting abortion access. You know, yes, it is because it will do X, Y, and Z bad thing. But it is also because wouldn't it be better if we lived in a world where women were not punished for being sexual? Wouldn't it be better if we lived in a world where women got to, you know, pick their own path in life and determine their own number and spacing of their children? You know, wouldn't that make all of us happier? Wouldn't that be just kind of a better way to live? So keeping that kind of big picture focus, I think, in our political discourse is really important. I think pushing our politicians to, especially on the left, to have this kind of values-driven view of the world. I think the right has been really good at owning the idea of of values generally (laughs) and of always situating the policies that they are promoting in this big picture of the world that they want, right? Which is a world that is sort of traditional and individualistic and focused on this like nuclear family model. They have a really clear image of what they are pushing for. And they are also lucky that that image is kind of backward looking, right? And so it ha- we have this kind of like rosy 1950s view that they can harken back to and say like, weren't things great then? So this is what we want to recreate now. Mm-hmm. And I think the left, you know, in the Democratic Party has not been as good at putting forward, okay, here's our vision. And yes, it hasn't existed yet, which makes it more challenging. But like, here's how all of our policies are in the service of this sort of bigger ideal. I think painting that picture policy-wise and whenever we're talking about policy is really, really valuable. And then I think kind of on an individual level, and this is like a really small and simple thing, but I think just kind of refusing to engage in 
a culture that really does kind of attack and shame women who pleasure seek in whatever way that looks like is something that each of us can do that can actually be really challenging. It's something I've been certainly challenged with quite a bit in my life, you know, but really trying not to criticize or, you know, judge women who eat in ways we don't think are, is appropriate, have sex in ways that, you know, we think, or that, you know, one, one maybe thinks um, are, are not appropriate dresses or acts or, you know, speaks in ways that make us uncomfortable. You know, I think a lot of the hostility to pleasure is done on kind of an individual personal policing level. And that is something that I think all of us can kind of have a hand in, in challenging. Yes. Jill, thank you so much for coming on Unscrewed to talk about the H spot. Tell us where people can follow you and also where they can find the book and all that good stuff. Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at, at Jill Filipovich. It's J-I-L-L-F-I-L-I-P-O-V-I-C. Twitter and Instagram at Jill Filipovich. You can find the book at barnesandnoble.com, Amazon, Powell's, or your local bookseller. And if they don't have it, please ask them to stock it. Yes, yes. And you can find me at Jacqueline F on Twitter and Facebook, Jacqueline Fable on Instagram. Come and chat with us on Twitter about your utopian visions that include the centering of female pleasure. Use the unscrewed hashtag so we can all talk to each other. You can find this podcast in your favorite podcaster, whether that's Apple Podcasts or Acast or Stitcher or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Make sure you're subscribed. Like I mentioned on the last show, I'm going on hiatus soon. Don't want you to miss out when we come back with fresh episodes. And while you're in there, give us five stars, give us a couple sentence review. It helps other people find the show. Unscrewed is produced and edited by yours truly, Jacqueline Friedman. Our in and out music is by the Pink Tiles and our cover art is by Nicole Dodonna and was developed in collaboration with the establishment who also developed the sound cues. Until next week, I'm wishing you all safe and happy sex lives. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.